0: You're listening to The Christian Single Moms Podcast. Welcome to The Christian Single Moms Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Donnelly, founder of Agape Moms, and I'm so thankful that you could join me for this conversation today. Here on the podcast, we emphasize discovering you on the journey through, and what that means to me is I believe that every single mom can discover a life of peace, power, and purpose— And I believe that she can do it right through the things that God is carrying her through in her season as a single mom. Today on the podcast, my guest is Dr. Steve Tracy. Steve has joined me here on the podcast before with his wife, Celesta, helping us to understand the biblical approach to handling abusive situations. As I've gotten to know Stephen and Celesta, we've identified a great need for victims of abuse to have tools and resources that they can bring to their pastoral support teams to help them to understand exactly what it is that they've been going through and what the Bible provides as guidance for handling those situations. And so in this episode, Steve and I are doing something a little different. You're definitely going to get a lot out of this conversation, but we wanted to create an episode that would be something that you could bring to your pastor or to your women's pastor and allow them to listen to, to have a sense of what it is that you might have been experiencing or going through and what kind of support and help that you really need. If you are someone who has suffered abuse and you're listening to this episode, it's still going to give you tools and language to explain what it is that you've been experiencing. And if you are a pastor who does tune into this episode, it will give you the ability to better discern what's happening in these situations and help you to understand what the needs are in addressing a situation like this and how to go about that. I've also partnered with Mending the Soul in creating a two-page document that contains much of the same content that we're going to talk about in this conversation. So you could kind of use it as a read-along guide. And if you'd like to get a copy of that, I'll have a link to it in the show notes. But you can also head over to agapemoms.com and find it there. While you're there, you can also access other resources that we've created for pastoring single parents and for helping victims of abuse get back on their feet. Additionally, you'll have the opportunity to subscribe to our email list and be notified of updates of new material. As we start in on this conversation today, I'd like to tell you about Dr. Steve Tracy. Steve is the President and International Director for Mending the Soul and Professor of Theology and Ethics at Phoenix Seminary, where he has taught since 1995. He has also served as a church pastor for 15 years. Steve's research and writing are focused on biblical ethics, sexuality, and abuse, He received a Master's of Divinity and Master's of Theology from Western Seminary and a Ph.D. in Biblical Studies from the University of Sheffield with a research focus on Pauline Ethics. Steve is the author of seven books, including Mending the Soul, and numerous book chapters and journal articles. Steve brings great clarity to a situation that can be somewhat confusing, and I just pray that as you listen along to this conversation that you'd receive some clarity as well. Here is my conversation with Dr. Steve Tracy. Steve, I'm excited you could join me here on the podcast again today. Welcome, welcome, welcome. welcome. I I wanted to um, have you on again. We talked a little bit to the women, to the victims in the previous episodes that you and your wife were able to do. And this time around, we want to shift the conversation to bring in the pastors as well. And I love... That you're able to address this because I find that in healing from an abusive situation, there's a team that's needed there. And counseling is important and support is important. Community is important. But having that pastoral oversight is really important, too. So as far as addressing these issues, though, I know from hearing from a lot of women, there's a variety of understanding or misunderstanding when it comes to what their pastors know about abusive situations and how to handle it. So I'd like to know, you know, if we're kind of bringing in a pastor into this conversation and he's maybe that pastor's not really sure if abuse or domestic violence is really happening in his congregation or if it's really an issue that he needs to consider tackling, if you would shine some light on that.
1: Absolutely. Having been a pastor for 15 years, and now this is my 26 years as a seminary professor training pastors, I understand the challenges uh, intimately. I distinctly remember early on as a pastor, just assuming intuitively that, of course, there's not domestic violence in this church. I mean, I know these people. They're Christians. They're good people. Mm-hmm. And uh, sadly, that wasn't based on reality, biblically and otherwise. And it was costly for me as a shepherd that I came in, into ministry and continued for several years with those misconceptions. So, for the pastor who's, who's thinking, well, I'm not really sure whether domestic abuse exists in this church, I, I would, you know, as I thought about that, you sent me the questions, Michelle, so I had time to kind of think it through. You know, my my gut instinct was, okay, pastor, are, are you uncertain whether sin is in your congregation?
2: Hmm.
1: <laughs> well, I assume virtually all of our evangelical pastors would say, well, of course there's sin because sin is universal. Right. Okay, let me come to this as someone who's who, who a biblical ethicist. In Paul in Romans 3, it's so fascinating. In Romans 3, he's building the case for a universal need for a savior based on universal sin. And in Romans 3.10, he says, there's none righteous and no, not one. And then he gives a series of quotations, largely from Psalms and Isaiah, to illustrate biblically that everyone's a sinner. Sin and the effects of sin are pervasive in the human race, and that's why everyone needs the gospel. It's why everyone needs Jesus. In discussing that, and I think it's verse 15, he quotes from Isaiah 59, again, to illustrate universal depravity, everyone's a sinner, and talks about physical and verbal abuse. Mm -hmm. They're feet are swift to shed blood. and Think of what Paul's doing here. Again, in a context of universal depravity and a universal need of a Savior, gives illustrations of physical abuse, and that, of course, encompasses domestic violence, and verbal abuse, which is part and parcel of domestic violence, uh, to show that we all need a Savior. If our congregation has sinners, you you can all but be assured that our congregation has abusers and abuse victims. Not all at necessarily the felony level, et cetera, mm-hmm. but abuse is pervasive because sin is pervasive. So that'd be my first response to a Pastor who's thinking, well, I'm not really sure this happens. Let's just, of course, think biblically. And scripture has there are literally hundreds of passages in scripture from Genesis to Revelation that talk about domestic violence. I mean, the first recorded instance of domestic violence is in Genesis 4, and that's only one chapter after uh, the fall into sin, mm-hmm. uh, Adam and even in the Garden of Eden. So, biblically, we have to assume that domestic violence does happen, even in our Christian families and the families of origin they came from. Secondly, and I always start with Scripture— I'm an evangelical. I stand on the Word of God. But I am also an academic and a researcher, and uh, i'm I think we benefit from the research. And we know from several studies, uh, independent of each other, same findings, and that's the best, you know we that, that's what you look for in doing research. Right. have several mm-hmm. different studies found the same thing independently. right With respect to prevalence of domestic violence, we we know, from really good research, that the highest domestic violence rates of any demographic group in America are among conservative Protestants. Wow. Wow. But, I mean, that's jolting, that's, you know, oh my goodness. But there's a positive flip side to that. The The highest domestic violence rates of any demographic group are also among conservative Protestants. (laughs) which seems utterly contradictory. Here's the variable. Conservative Protestant men who attend church sporadically are the most likely statistically to abuse. Mm -hmm. The conservative Protestant men who attend church on a very regular basis are the least. Mm -hmm. Now, there's been a lot of speculation. What in the world is that about? Um, You know, I think we could conjecture the ones who just come sporadically are don't have the opportunity for the, the same kind of healthy modeling. They don't have the opportunity to, to, to see what healthy families look like.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: domestic abusers are very likely to have come from families where domestic violence was prevalent, uh, mm-hmm. present.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so uh, abusive behavior has been normalized. It's created some deep soul wounds and insecurities, and those insecurities get triggered so easily and then they lash out, you know, there are a lot of factors, but, you know, the sporadic attenders don't have the modeling. They may hear a few messages, especially about gender roles and wives be submissive Mm -hmm. and husbands are the head and not getting the fuller teaching of scripture. Of course, they're going to, you know, if you come into this with some real um, insecurities, unhealthiness, then you're going to grab hold of something like that, and it, it can go in really unbiblical and healthy directions, um, there, I think there are a lot of factors. Men that come on a regular basis, many more opportunities to be discipled, to have the give and take of accountability, etc. cetera. So, j- just from that research, we know that, and if you put all that together, we find that statistically, people in our evangelical congregations are are. Roughly at parity with experiencing domestic violence. Might mm-hmm. be just a little bit better overall. Yeah. But the, the, it's roughly at parity with mm-hmm. the population at large. And, mm-hmm. and we know from multiple studies that in North America, US and Canada, women, at least one out of four women will experience a contact physical violence assault in her lifetime. And and there's certainly domestic violence short of actual physical assault, which is still very real and very damaging. Uh, some studies go closer to thirty percent. Right. Uh, but point of all that is simply we cannot work off the intuitive, understandably intuitive assumption that this this is probably not happening in my congregation. Chances are it is, mm-hmm. and even even for those who aren't experiencing it right now. They've come from families. They've had all kinds of experiences. They've got, in some cases, grown children, et cetera, grandchildren. And I guarantee there's, I can't imagine there's a congregation in the United States where there aren't people who've been directly impacted by domestic violence right. in the present present or the past. And we have to work off that assumption to be wise and godly shepherds. And that's yeah. a hard reality. but. You know, the the truth is the truth. The truth is our friend.
2: Mm,
0: That's good. Yeah. And I mean, it's really, when you look at it that way, like you said, it's a mathematical impossibility to have in this country between one in three and one in four women who are dealing with some kind of abuse. And we're not even going to limit that to physical abuse. You know, that is the verbal and emotional abuse, that sexual abuse, all types that go into that statistic. So mathematically speaking, it has to be happening. In your congregation, Absolutely. and Absolutely. I think even further as you referenced Romans, it's something that Paul even references also in his letters, to Timothy, that right. Paul was aware right. that this kind of manipulation, this deep-seated evil, yeah, right. is happening yeah. in these congregations, and Paul even points out it is going to be those people who look really religious. And so, where you mentioned that statistically, yes, it's more likely to be a sporadic attender. There are still plenty of really involved, Absolutely. very embedded. Church members, that this is part of their story. Yeah. And I think that's the part that makes it so difficult to identify is yes, you're model citizen very often. And so it's hard to believe that your, you know, perfect shining example of husband and wife in your congregation is actually where this is taking place.
1: Yeah. And I wouldn't want, thank you, Michelle. I wouldn't want. Those my stats I cited to be misconstrued as if okay they're regular attenders so, so it we're not <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I give the example in in my Many in the Soul book of in one of my pastorates uh, when I was still very naive and just we were just sure in this congregation of you know seven eight hundred people that there. It wasn't happening. I I was absolutely as confident as a young pastor mm-hmm. <laughs> with more knowledge than wisdom could be. <laughs> that it's
2: not happening. Yeah.
1: The very period of time I was so convinced and and was actually quite offended when the women's ministry I heard was having a speaker speak on domestic violence. I was offended because I thought she's going to plant ideas. This doesn't mm-hmm. happen here. What a stupid idea. Mm-hmm. At the very time that was going on, we had an elder who, for 20 plus years, had been beating his wife, put her in the hospital multiple times at that very time. And we had two other church leaders who were committing criminal, capital Mm -hmm. A abuse. You know, I, I was just naive. So, yeah, yeah. And, and now we're talking leaders who were there every time the doors were open. So we, mm-hmm. we can't assume, yeah, it's not happening because this is a wonderful people or it's a church leader. And you mentioned First Timothy, yeah, First Timothy 3, and I think mm-hmm. it's 3, Paul makes uh, not being an abuser a qualification for eldership. Mm-hmm. That's how realistic Paul is. So, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, um, yeah.
1: We just, yeah, to be biblical, we have to assume every human being has a sin nature. And even if they've trusted Christ and they're a Jesus follower, there's, you know, until the Lord glorifies us, we still have a sin nature and we can easily fall into those sinful patterns. And certainly abuse is one of those patterns. So. And I think
0: for anybody who's listening, who's not even certain what we mean when we say abuse, and please correct me or fill in here, but what we're talking about is power dynamics in which one person is asserting dominance over another. And that can look many ways. That can be, as I mentioned before, that can be physical abuse. It can be sexual abuse. It can be financial abuse. It can even be spiritual abuse um, in which the word is somewhat contorted and twisted to fit a person's um, need for for power and things like that. Um, are there any other I've missed there that you would?
1: Well, Michelle, you, you've really hit the essence. Um, Celeste and I are actually right now, and I may have mentioned this in the last podcast we did, revising the meaning of this whole book, and I've added quite a bit of material just to further unpack this. Abuse is always about a misuse of power.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and scripture in numerous places talks about that. It's a power is a beautiful thing that, a gift that we're given from God, are our words, our physical power, our spiritual power, etc. But any good gift can be distorted, hmm. and Satan is the delights in that, so that we take a good power, say our sexual power, which can literally be life-giving and mm-hmm. life-using
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, in a covenant marriage, as God intended, but that sexual power can be used in a abusive way not to give life, but to literally or metaphorically take life
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: instead of expressing love it express lust and mm-hmm. give. Uh, all of our power can be used that way. So we want to think of abuse always in terms of a mis- misuse of some kind of power. And to that extent, man or woman, child or adult, we all have some kinds of power mm-hmm. and they can be misused. So children mm-hmm. can abuse each other women can abuse husbands mm-hmm. etc
0: yeah
1: certain kinds of power are not evenly distributed and i'm thinking particularly physical power mm-hmm. on the, I mean that and that's just how god's made us men on the whole and largely mm-hmm. based on testosterone have greater physical strength so in terms of domestic violence women can certainly be abusive with their words and and, and sometimes physically but because men do tend to be stronger physically, um, and, and in many of our contexts socially, there are some unique male-perpetuated elements to domestic violence mm-hmm. um, that we, we want to be sensitive to and aware of. I think, especially as as church leaders, I mean, you don't have to be a big athlete to be stronger than than your wife. That's just mm-hmm. that's biology. There are exceptions, but. Yeah. Um, but, but they're just that. Uh, so, as pastors, and most of us are males, as church leaders, at least in our evangelical context, we, we want to be sensitive to those power differentials and the vulnerable. Scripture has so much to say about protecting the vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And those with less power, economically, physically, socially, spiritually, are more vulnerable to the misuse of power by others over them and one of our primary tasks as shepherds is to protect that's what shepherds do yeah uh, so biblical so the only way we can do that well as church leaders is to be realistic and aware of power differentials so that we don't coming from our perspective as a as a male where we don't feel a sense of threat mm-hmm. well my goodness we want to get out of our skin, so to speak, and and be sensitive to those whose experiences are different from mm-hmm. ours mm-hmm. because they don't have the same kind of power and hence they'll they'll be threatened in ways we don't even perceive, let alone understand. And yet, as a sh- as a good shepherd, I need to educate myself, mm-hmm. listen to those voices so that I can advocate, protect, educate, etc. It's really important.
0: That's really good that you just said that, because I know that sometimes if these things are happening and it kind of looks like, oh, there's a marriage problem going on here. And then, you know, the couple might be referred to counseling and counseling has its role for the individual, which we'll get into that in a little bit. But pastors are not then, I don't, from what I understand from scripture, pastors are not then like, like dust your hands off, like, okay, we sent them to counseling, like we're good. So can you... Can you talk a little oh, yes. bit more about the pastor's role then, though, in shepherding these people who are going through these type of circumstances?
1: Yeah, great, great question. And I really miss being a pastor. Um, I'm kind of a pastor of pastors now, in a very real sense. So I, I love what I get to do now as a seminary teacher and as a mending the Soul president, uh, training pastors around the world. But You know, having that into my own congregation where I shepherd and you're there at birth and death and in between, um, what a sacred role. Mm. Um, Oh, I love my 15 years as a shepherd. It's really a privilege of God. We certainly want to utilize resources like professional counselors that have the advanced training in areas that, that we don't get, even if we've been to seminary, from mental illness to trauma, all kinds of things. And that's important and helpful. But a counselor is not a shepherd. And the counseling office is not a spiritual family. Mm. The beauty in God's design of the church is it's to be a spiritual family. It's that environment where in a healthy church, there are no perfect churches, but in a healthy church, people are being loved, they're being nurtured, they're being given healthy feedback, uh, godly modeling, and so many things can and should take place in the local church that aren't going to happen elsewhere, be it the mm-hmm. counselor's office, the physician's office, whatever. So, it, it's really important that shepherds uh, not just farm out, if you will, the, the, the care of abuse survivors. And yeah. I, I understand how overwhelming it is. It's like, I, they didn't train me for this. I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, th- okay, that's where the trained professionals can do some of the things you can't. Uh, and ministries like Mending the Soul that are specialized can supplement. But none of that takes the place of the, the local church. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just I think in terms of shepherding. And the other thing that comes to my mind as is, is I went through this, why we don't want to just kind of farm out abuse situations to the experts and then, you know, we go on to take care of the normal church life. Um, Biblically, we're responsible for what we know. Uh, And I think, for instance, of of Eli, who was, Hmm. in most respects, a very godly priest, uh, man of God, But uh, we read in 1 Samuel 2 and 3 that he had two sons who were wicked. They were evil. They were Mm -hmm. abusive. Mm -hmm. Physically, um, as people went into the temple or tabernacle at this point and did their sacrifices that God had required, um, they would literally seize the whole uh, meat by force. So, and it was threats of force, because abuse isn't just assaulting someone, it's, it's mm-hmm. threats. So, mm-hmm. in this case, it's that category. But then, also, they were sleeping with the women. They, they were the spiritual leaders, so that was very abusive. And, and given what we know in Chapter 2, chances are that there was some physical force involved in that as well. So, they were, they were abusive, physically mm-hmm. and sexually. Eli heard about that and confronted them verbally, but didn't stop them. Mm-hmm. And then we see that God literally took Eli's life mm-hmm. because he was responsible as the father. They were grown sons, but he was still their father and he had a spiritual oversight yeah. over the community and he didn't stop it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, I, that what that tells me as a, as a spiritual leader is to know is to be responsible. So if it comes to my attention that there's an abuse situation, whether or not I feel I'm expertly equipped, and chances are most pastors won't,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I still I, I can't get off the hook by just farming that out. I have yeah. I have to do what I can to protect and certainly to find resources. Not that I have to do everything, right? But that I have an oversight responsibility to do what I can and to marshal resources.
0: I think there's an accountability portion that you just sort of pointed to with Eli there that Eli was accountable despite the right. fact that his sons were older that he had a role in shepherding that he abdicated right. and just from a woman's perspective if there is an abuser in the household that woman and her children need protecting they need right. that accountable right. that accountable voice that other man to speak into that situation and that is something counseling can't do. So if right you are paying a counselor to, whether it's individual counseling, marriage counseling, that kind of thing, that's a transaction where number one, there's no, there's no accountability in that. If I stop paying you, then I feel like I have the power, right? And I don't have to come here anymore. But number two, I don't have to tell the counselor, everything. So if I'm the abuser, I can go in there again, whether it's individual or marriage, I can go in there and say whatever I want, paint the picture, however I want. And now there's still no accountability. So I suppose what we're both saying here is right. that just because you have passed that on to an appropriate resource and absolutely, like as you said, it's wholly appropriate to send folks to counseling so that they have resources it's not where the accountability comes in. And that's a piece that where that protection, I love that word, that protection comes in for the victims in these circumstances. So wow. as far that's as so things that pastors typically think, so as we we're talking about counseling here, pastors might typically think are helpful, but are actually hurtful in these types of situations. Can you point out a couple of those things? We've talked here on the podcast before that marriage counseling is not a good thing solution for an abusive type situation so highlight that for us.
1: Oh absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh my goodness and that's that's kind of a default reaction. Well we need to send this couple to marriage counseling because there's obviously real problems in the marriage. Uh, there's abuse going on etc They need marriage counseling. That intuitively makes sense for most of us. It's mm-hmm. absolutely one of the worst things you can recommend. Absolutely, one of the worst because marriage counseling is typically a big piece of it is helping both parties understand the other person's needs and perspective. And it's about, you know, compromise. And, you know, the counselor is addressing both people. What happens in marriage counseling when one's in when there's abuse going on is that the abuser. It could be both, but normally there's one who's the primary abuser of the other. All they hear is what the counselor says the other person should do, even if it's one suggestion out of a hundred. That's what they latch on to. And in fact, they get new language to use against the one that they've been victimizing. So they can actually abuse at a more sophisticated level. Mm-hmm. So, marriage counseling is, counseling may well be needed, but not marriage counseling. I'd separate that out. Uh, the victim needs, if the resources are there, specialized help from a therapist to address boundaries and the effects of the abuse and all kinds of personal issues, some of which likely go back to family of origin, um, and then the abuser most certainly needs all kinds of very specialized assistance in addressing the very heart wounds that, that would lead him or her to become abusive, to, especially to learn to take res- full responsibility for his or her actions, etc. cetera. But that needs to be separated out. Um, mm-hmm. you, you just can't do that conjointly in marriage counseling. It, it, it won't happen. Um, mm-hmm. It will be very counterproductive. So that mm-hmm. that's, yeah, I'll underscore, if you don't do marriage, recommend marriage counseling where there's abuse. Um, you no, know, trying to deal with it in-house. Hey, we're a family and we're just going to take care of everything here, which sometimes means as it relates to sexual abuse, we don't report it to the authorities. Big, big, big mistake. And this is kind of the flip side of the, the previous point. We can't the church has so much that they can bring to unhealthy troubled families but it's important that we also recognize the limits of what we can offer and supplement in those critical points. So where there's any kind of child abuse and this is Romans 13, of course we involve the authorities that, that we're commanded by God to obey the authorities
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and, and we utilize other experts to supplement. We, we don't just take care of everything in house as if that's all we need to do. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. that would certainly be another understandable and well meaning mistake in terms of what we say to the victim. And most often in, in domestic abuse, that would, would be the woman. Oh my goodness, asking, Well, what did you do
2: mm.
1: in the context of a violent, you know, an abusive episode? Well, well, what did you say that made him so mad? etc. That, again, it may be intuitive for, for some of us. You know, I don't, I don't fault a natural question there, but here's what's heard. It's my fault. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably the message that he's been giving to her in every sort of way to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There, there is no excuse for, for domestic violence any more than there's an excuse for rape. You know, right. for me to ask a woman who was date raped, well, what did you do? Well, what were you wearing? Mm-hmm. That is so, not just inappropriate, mm-hmm. but it's, it's really harmful because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm implying her being victimized was her fault. Mm-hmm. Somehow it was partly her fault. So we definitely don't want to ask that. Um, another thing we don't want to ask, and I and I had this uh, recently in a conversation with a woman who contacted me because of years of abuse in a perfect Christian family, mm-hmm. um, really, you know, very sweet family. But there's this hidden piece that no one has known about, and everyone would be shocked if they knew. Well, she had s- only a couple people know. Um, but one person said, well, I, I don't understand why you don't just leave.
2: Mm.
1: And I understand that as a pastor, seeing a family where there's abuse. Well, why don't you just leave? It may well be that from my perspective, she does need to leave for her safety and the children's safety. So again, I understand that reaction I've given it. But what can be heard is I'm a fool.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. I'm, well, A, um, I'm an idiot that I've allowed this, Mm -hmm. and B, now I really don't know what to do. I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet. He's Mm -hmm. the primary breadwinner. He says he's going to, who knows what he's going to do, maybe the killer. Mm
2: -hmm. And we
1: certainly know that statistically, when a woman leaves or threatens to leave, um, her Statistical likelihood of being seriously injured or even killed go up dramatically.
0: Right, that's the most not
1: not for every woman, but Mm -hmm. just statistically as a category, that's um, one of the most dangerous times for a a woman who's in a in a DV uh, relationship is Mm -hmm. when she leaves or threatens to leave. So we we put her potentially in a much higher bind that um, she has these fears. And yet now we're, we're putting this you know burden on her that we expect her to leave, we can't understand, fathom why in the world she doesn't leave, she must be stupid that she's not leaving, etc. cetera. So we've added another burden to her, completely well-meaning. There's a better way to handle that, yeah. but um, I think that would be another example of something that um, is done to help, but actually ends up being harmful.
0: I'd like to take a short break from our conversation to mention our sponsor, Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is Christian counseling that is available on the go. And it works through an app where you are able to schedule video sessions or just chat with your counselor throughout the course of the week. And i found that having the combination of Christian teaching and counseling together was so encouraging and so healing for me. If you have been considering Christian counseling and you would like to give Faithful Counseling a try, you can get 10% off of your first month by going to getfaithful.com forward slash single mom. I want to go back to what you said as well about, well, what did you do? And sometimes the tendency to create sort of a 50-50 equation out of it Like, there's ever a justification for hitting somebody, or as you said, you know, like rape. There's no justification of any level of annoyance or nagging, or sometimes it's, you know, even in the case of like sexual abuse or cheating, where it's like, oh, well, you're not doing you know, what your husband wants in this way. So of course this would be what he would do. Like, no, not, not of course. It's always on the abuser always. to choose whether or not he's going to choose a righteous course of action or a wicked course of action. And there's exactly. no justification for a person choosing a course of action that's wicked. And I think that's the, the troubles. We're not calling these things, is this good or is this evil? We're just saying, oh, it was a bad choice. <laughs> but it's so much greater than that.
1: Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, I mean, God's word says that God abhors violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, Psalm 5, Psalm 11, um, God detests the bloodthirsty man. Proverbs 6, these six things the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination. Um, and on the list is those who shed blood, as well as verbal abusers, by the right.
0: way. Right, there's uh, lying lips and, yeah, yeah, all of that's in that one. Mm-hmm. When God says
1: he detests, he hates something, when he singles out behavior, and of course God hates all sin, but there's certain sin that's given its own category. And when God says, I particularly detest this, Mm -hmm. we better pay attention. Mm -hmm. Um, He's giving us a list of things that are of a greater consequence, uh, that are more destructive, that in that sense, he hates more than other things. Yeah, again, God hates all sin, yes, mm-hmm. but all sin's not the s- same in his eyes in terms of consequences, in terms of punishment, because yeah. that's what Scripture says. So, yes. if, we, if we lump, say, a, a woman wearing what to us would be an immodest outfit with the man who rapes her, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. say, well, why were you wearing that? You know, mm-hmm. let's assume for the sake of discussion, it was immodest, and that's that's a judgment call that's, you know, but I'll just say for the sake of discussion, it, mm-hmm. it really was immodest. For me to, in the same discussion, bring together her immodesty with his rape, is that's outrageous. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That's, there is no justification, yeah. period. So, let we we have to totally separate out. Uh, that discussion, and it should never go together. We don't ask, what were you wearing, or what did you say, or what did you do? Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of a separate ministry to the victim and the perpetrator, of course there needs to come a time where we, in time, and it's down the road, um, look at our patterns of behavior and and continue to grow and address choices we're making. Um, But that's down the road. First and foremost, we address the, the abuse issue because Scripture makes that a front, central, major, major, major theme.
0: And as what you're talking about, the things that God abhors, they aren't these individual instances. And I think that's another tendency that we fall into is saying, you know, oh, this person cheated and, you know, that these are individual instances. This points to a greater depravity in the heart, a greater hardening, a likelihood to reject God's teaching and his instruction and to go one's own way. And I think that's the biggest piece of this as we talk about next, you know, how do we identify really who is the abuser? Cuz sometimes in these situations like we talked about, there can be this model citizen up against a the spouse who looks like they're losing their minds, you know, or the spouse that looks like they're withholding or those kinds of things when that spouse is really traumatized and terrorized. And so it's understanding the condition of the heart there. But so let's talk about that. Let's talk about if I'm a pastor and I've got a couple who comes to me and I really can't sort out which end is which. I've got one who's a faithful servant and, you know, the other one that, you know, looks like there's a lot of emotional issues, maybe some reactivity that's going on there. How can we sort out what the truth of the issue is?
1: Sometimes that that takes the wisdom of Solomon. I think for one mm-hmm. thing, Michelle, we do exactly what you're doing in in your ministry and and these podcasts, educate ourselves. I I had a discussion just very recently with a church leader, a a dear godly man who said, you know, for the longest time, as a church leader, we would periodically get these reports. And I'm looking at it saying, this woman's just unstable. Mm -hmm. My goodness, she's so passive here. She, She keeps contradicting herself and her story her husband's giving a scripture. He, he's, he's very coherent. Um, she's saying he's abusive, but look but looking at her behavior, I, I, I don't see it.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: he said, you know, it's just been recently that I've come to realize we missed it. We completely missed it. We were dealing with a victim who was textbook victim. She was showing all the characteristics of a victim. And we didn't see it for what it was. And a lot of this, so as we educate ourselves, that's why you're doing this podcast. That's why Mending the Soul exists. We have all kinds of resources on DV and other kinds of abuse on our website. Um, even understanding the basic biology of trauma, things start to make sense. And I'll, I'll, I'll more accurately identify what's sitting in front of me. Um, I'll realize it's very very characteristic of abusers that they are cunning and crafty and don't own anything and always blame. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: It's very characteristic of perpetrator, uh, excuse me, of abuse victims based on neurobiology that they're going to present with a sense of powerlessness that, and I, I won't go into the details of this other than to say there's Excellent scientific research. I mean, based on brain scans, that one of the first things that happens during trauma, when when there's an overwhelming sense of fear, chemicals are and this is the beauty, beautiful design of God, pumped into our bloodstream, particularly dopamine and uh, epinephrine, that compromise the, the our ability to reason and and remember. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, it literally fragments memory, and that's biochemical. Yeah. So that uh, the trauma prevents the, the the basically the body is not able to remember some of the details uh, of what had happened. And memory is stored more in in sensory memories than than what we call explicit memory. So uh, again, you you hear the survivor, and it sounds like that you know they don't have clear memory. They they're, what they recount seems contradictory. That actually would, would be very characteristic of trauma. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, not that any of those are foolproof in and of itself, but the more you know about just the basics of, of abuse, trauma, characteristics of, uh, of offenders as well as victims— you, it'll be much easier to start to sort out what you're seeing in front of you. Um, it still takes a lot of discernment of the Lord, uh, but the more educated I am, the easier it will be to start to make sense of these things. Mm-hmm. One thing that Celesta, after almost 20 years of clinical care, working with countless abuse victims and, and many perpetrators, um, she would say, look at what's in front of you. What are you seeing? Um now, you may never get uh, agreement on the story and, you know, th- things may be fuzzy, but what are you seeing in front of you? Are you seeing the effects of trauma in front of you? And mm-hmm. if you are, if it appears you are, that's coming from somewhere. Don't dismiss it. Mm-hmm. Um, don't dismiss it.
0: Yeah. I've heard from cases, too, where sometimes the counselor, if there's a counselor that's involved in this, can actually be given permission to speak to the pastor in the case of a woman who is being counseled for trauma or something like that, where there can be kind of this team that's created there so that the person who is an expert and is informed can also speak into that situation. So it's not even necessarily that the pastor has to make an assessment Right. Um, but that there can be um, a team that's kind of built there. What are some other ways that a pastor can step into that space where they are really adamantly focused on supporting a victim and the children, and then also holding a perpetrator accountable?
1: That's that's a great question. And that's a tricky one. As I said earlier, we're not going to do it in marital counseling. Long-term as there's growth and healing, Yeah in time, marital counseling, but we have to address root issues for both the victim and the perpetrator early on. So, um, I advise churches to think in terms of a separate kind of ministry team, uh, if you will, uh, for the victim versus the perpetrator. So, we ideally have a counselor for each, a couple mentors, encouragers for each, and hopefully there's some permission for the different teams to talk to each other. I mean, that, that would be the ideal scenario. Obviously, people don't always allow us to work with the ideal, but if the opportunity is there, um, then I think that's, that's the best way. And then the team that's working with the perpetrator is getting some feedback from the others that are caregiving for the victim so that they're not just going on what the perpetrator is saying. Oh, yeah, I'm doing great. I'm, you know, I'm taking responsibility. We're making all this progress. Okay, well, that's huh, great. Thank you for sharing. What are the others that are... What's, what are we hearing from the family? What's their experience? What, what's the victim saying? Is she seeing and experiencing the same kind of progress that he's reporting? It's really important that we just that we not just take you know one person's word for it. Uh, so I think yeah the communication separate teams um, that are strategized to help with the care definitely getting permission um, if if the individuals will will give it to talk get reports from the counselor uh, and for the counselor to get reports from the church. Um, there are some counselors seem to think that they have the wisdom to do everything themselves and don't even talk to the other family members. I think that's foolish at a high level. Um, but there are also counselors who work on more of a family, what in counseling we call a family systems model, um, and, and recognize that it's, it's essential to, to get all the input possible because that professional relationship is very limited. Know, it's just in the counseling office it's nowhere else and so uh, a healthy counselor recognizes that they're just getting a little peace and so a, a wise counselor will will want input from other family members and the, the church family uh, they'll yeah. want to partner with the pastor again they obviously have to get permission um, but to be able to get feedback from what the pastor's seen to have that dialogue work together for the good of this family and, and these individuals. Mm-hmm. That's the ideal. It's kind of a teamwork. Uh, yeah.
0: Now, if there's a, a pastor who's thinking, okay, I've got to get some more resources on this or what kind of resources do I need to refer out? What do I need to know about in my community that I can refer victims to and those kinds of things? What are some of those things that a pastor should get their eye on?
1: As far as Michelle uh, written resources or just, As broad as possible, you think? I
0: think, I mean, I guess I'm hitting kind of two angles here. The first being if I'm a pastor and there's material out there that I can absorb pretty quickly, you know, to get a better framework for understanding how these things work. And then on the other side of it, if I'm a pastor, though, I know I can't do everything. So what kind of community resources or, you know, like shelters, like those kinds of things, what are really useful things that I can point congregants to so that I really am not handling the whole thing myself?
1: Yeah. Well, I I would certainly uh, encourage people to go to the Many of the Soul website. I mean, we exist to support the church. Um, I mean, that's what parent church means coming alongside the church and having a specialized call. Uh, And for us, it's creating um, well-informed, high-quality resources on various aspects of abuse. So we have quite a bit that's free, downloadable on domestic violence. Got a uh, some of which are of a more academic nature. Several of my journal articles uh, on aspects of domestic violence are available for free, downloadable. Um, then we have some more simple, I have an overview of domestic violence, um, you know, real basic, but it's an introductory overview. Um, so there's quite a bit there. Um, I, I mentioned, just last night, revising the in this whole book. We're adding quite a bit on domestic violence Um, aspects, uh, for instance, of coercive control, which is a huge aspect of domestic violence that I didn't really address in the first version. Um, So that should be coming out in 2021. Um, A few other books. I'm not the only writer. Um, I'd really recommend Lundy Bancroft's book. It's brilliant. Uh, Mm -hmm. He he has spent a couple decades working with abusive men. Uh, The title is, Why Does He Do That? inside the minds of angry and controlling men. Bancroft to my knowledge is not a disciple of Christ but I've spoken at conferences uh, where he spoke um, and found very little there next to nothing that as a Christian theologian I I didn't agree with he, he's, he's just spent decades working with abusers um, and he's certainly faith friendly um, and I just find his works, to have, he's written several books to be so insightful. Um, He gives, I don't know, eight or nine subcategories of of abusers, domestic abusers Mm -hmm. and the characteristics, you know, I mean, for a single book for pastors to read, to educate themselves, that one is, is just terrific. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I've got some other bibliographies on the website. Um, There, there are some good things that have been written. Al Miles, a Hawaiian pastor, um, has written a couple books on domestic violence that are real readable, um, really helpful. You know, I would recommend every pastor, I mean, unless you're in a really rural community, and, and some of the listeners may be, um, there are domestic uh, battered women, it's mainly battered women's shelters around the country. Um, visit one. Hmm. You you would bless and probably shock the shelter director. If you set up uh, a meeting and said, I, I, "I'm Pastor John Smith. Uh, I, I would love to. I, I want to learn more about domestic violence. Uh, I want to know the resources in my community. Could I come in and just talk to you and 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 learn a little bit more about the resources uh, that maybe down the road our church is going to need? And that would really help me as a pastor. Oh my goodness." you'd probably have the director in tears, mm-hmm. and they would bend over backwards to give you resources. I guarantee they've got all kinds of educational resources. You'd have a potential partnership mm-hmm. uh, and you would learn so much. First time I went to Sojourner Center in Phoenix years ago now, and the, the woman at the time, she's retired, but she'd been the director for years, was a fellow believer, um, not a christian center per se but she very much um share we were able to talk at a in uh, a jesus level which was beautiful but oh my goodness um i was in tears just seeing the work and it it was so encouraging Mm. but and at that point i was already a professional working in the field of abuse but i still learned quite a bit and she was delighted to have me visit and just share more And again, it gave me one more resource that I had a personal connection with in my community that I could send send parishioners, um, et cetera. So I think that's, and and I've known of communities that are doing this. I did a training several years ago in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, domestic violence training for some of the churches. And one of the things that prompted that was some of the people in, in a couple of Baptist churches were getting real involved with battered women's shelters and they wanted an even tighter partnership. I just thought, wow, what a what a model here. Believers and and secular workers, there's so much shared ground here. Uh and and certainly there are plenty of people working in secular shelters that are followers of Jesus. But even if they're not, you know, this is the common good. I mean, together we of course we want to protect women. We may yeah. have some other differences of you know, lifestyle conviction, etc. But there's so much we can agree on here. Let's work together. And believe me, there's plenty of shelters that have uh, virtually all of them have women who come. It's mainly women that do have a faith background. They want spiritual care, mm-hmm. and so there's a, there can be a bi-directional. If it's a secular shelter, they're not going to be able to offer the spiritual care. Right. But if no, there's a church that. Gets it? That's educated. That wants to partner. They may be the first one you call and say, "Okay, we have this family, and and, and they would really like spiritual care. Could you work with them? Could they give you a call, etc." Yeah,
0: and Beautiful I want to actually echo what you just said because I get emails a lot from women who say. I need to start at a new church or I haven't been in church for a long time. Is there a church in my area that gets this? Just what you said. Is there a church that understands abuse, that understands domestic violence, understands what I'm trying to heal from, all of that kind of thing? And often what I do is I let them know, contact your local shelter, because if they have a partnership with a local church, they can tell you who are the churches that they right. work with regularly. So yes, bang on. Like I love that you said that. That's exactly right.
1: Yeah. Uh, let me, while I'm thinking of it, Michelle mentioned mm-hmm. one other resource I'd forgotten. Day of Discovery, which is uh, part of Radio Bible Class, uh, Richard Dehan started it. They they do the the Daily Bread. A lot mm-hmm. of our churches, you know, have those available. It's wonderful ministry that goes back to World War II. I think they did a, f- I think it was a four part video series uh, that they distributed on uh, cable television networks nationally called When Love Hurts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is a conservative, evangelical, highly respected organization, and they were so burdened for our churches to understand abuse that they created this three or four part, you know, 30-minute episode series. I think Many of the Soul sells it. I'm sure you could still get it from uh, Radio Bible Class, whatever. I think that's what they're still called. A great educational tool for pastors as well as for victims. Um, so Great. Yeah.
0: Great. Great. Steve, I so appreciate your perspective and just all of the really practical examples and tips and things that you gave today. For a woman who's listening, who is in that space of trying to find where that church community is, where is that support that she can get, that pastoral support. For a single mom or a woman who's in that situation, what's one thing that you would want her to know?
1: Honestly, the first thing, Thing I wanted would want her to know is that God hates abuse. Mm-hmm. She may not have heard that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we don't say that enough often enough from the pulpit. Not that pastors would ever support abuse, but by our silence for victims, that says something. Um, and that's the I what would want
2: mm-hmm.
1: abuse victims in our audience to know God hates abuse. His word makes it really, really clear. Um, he hates it, he stands against it, um, and so must we. So it, you may feel like you're alone, you may feel like it's your fault, there is no excuse for abuse, and God hates it infinitely more than we we could because he, he's the one who made us. Uh, abuse mars the very image of God um, that he created. So, that's the number one thing I'd want survivors to know.
0: Thank you so much for that. Can you tell listeners about Mending the Soul and the other ways that they can get in touch with you?
1: Sure. We have a, a new and improved website, uh, mm-hmm. www.mendingthesoul.org, uh, with all, all kinds of downloadable resources. Uh, we address uh, all kinds of abuse, but we, we exist to equip the body of Christ worldwide um, to respond to abuse in a wise and compassionate way. And that's our call of God. So we, we have some resources that are, you know, book length, workbook length and, um, and you can purchase those online, um, help support the ministry. um, But plenty of things that are downloadable for free. Um, We have a workbook that a lot of people have gone through, uh, That can be a great resource for, I mean, we wrote it really with churches in mind that as a curriculum that the church wants to offer healing for abuse survivors, here's the curriculum. Um, And we have an online training now for people that want to be a facilitator. We have a facilitator guide. It's kind of a, you know, one-stop shop. And coming out, Lord willing, in about summer, we'll have a new curriculum called Explore, which. Similarly, could be used as curriculum for a church that wants to have healing groups, um, but that'll be a simpler, shorter curriculum, a little easier entry point. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, those would be those would be some of the resources that uh, could be accessed from Mending the Soul.
0: Terrific. And I will have links to all of that in the show notes to make it easier for listeners to access. But again, I just want to thank you for joining me again. Thank you for all the work that y'all are doing. It's just so needed and so appreciated.
1: Thank you, Michelle. Love what you're doing. Uh, We all do this together to serve the Jesus we love, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Amen. (laughs) Thank you. When it comes to issues of abuse, there's really two things that we have to wrestle with. The first one is, how do we identify it? And the second is, what do we do about it? And I just pray that as you listen to this conversation today, that maybe you started to get some answers about both of those things. As we wrap up today's episode, I do want to point out a couple of resources available in the show notes. The first is our private Facebook group, Beloved Collective. Going through the issues and things that we're dealing with as single moms in community is so valuable. And so if you'd like to join the Facebook group, all you have to do is search for Agape Moms on Facebook at Agape Moms, and then click on the groups tab there and submit a request to join the group. Likewise, if you would like to follow along with Agape Moms on Instagram, You can search for us at Agape Moms. Additionally, I now have a weekly video, guided scripture, meditation available for every episode of the podcast. And if you subscribe to the Agape Moms YouTube channel, you will receive notifications when those videos become available. And it's just a great way to start off your day with some encouragement from God's word and apply some of the things that we're learning here on the podcast. I also want to thank you for your subscriptions, your rankings, your reviews. It's so encouraging to me to see what God is doing in your life. Life and to see Him on the move, but it also helps other women to be drawn in to just what God has for them here as well. And as you move through the rest of your day or your evening, I just pray that you would know that you are seen and you are beloved.